Hello, this is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind with me, psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman. And me, science journalist Marnie Chesterton. This is the podcast where we delve into the psychology of everyday life and answer your questions about human behaviour. Expect fascinating facts, scintillating science, and this might just improve your life. In this episode, we're talking about creativity. For example, are children more creative than adults? What are the secrets used by creative geniuses? How can you become more creative? Literally me, more creative. Just you. Just me. Okay, fair enough. Is there room for improvement? I think you're at the ceiling. You're the very, very (laughs) pinnacle of uh, creativity. But the rest of us, apparently, there's hope. Let's get on with the show. How do we measure? How do we measure creativity? Now, there, there is a very big question. Are there units? Um, There are. Yes. Really? Is there an SI unit of creativity? Well, they're kind of, because when you do experiments, I've done quite a lot of research into creativity, you do have to measure it somehow. Psychologists like measuring things. And we should distinguish between artistic creativity, which psychologists tend to avoid and attach to the barge pole, because measuring that's really tricky. Because you need to make what judgment calls about whether a tree is better than a cat painting. Exactly. Okay. You go to a gallery and there's just a big argument kicks okay. off and, and nobody wants that in an experiment. Um, so there's some work into uh, creativity in art, but most of it has been on creative problem solving. So you, you've got a you've got a, a one way of looking at the world, and somebody comes up with another way of looking at it, which is has got some utility. It's it's useful in some way. And so, in, in order to do this experiment, you need to measure. You need to measure creative problem solving. Turns out, the way most psychologists measure it, very simple. You say to somebody, "Here's an everyday object, like a paperclip. Come up with as many uses for that paperclip." as possible. Now, if you're not too creative, you tend to go, you could use it to clip paper together. Yeah. And that's it. Okay. And that's, that's, you tend to be on the lower end of it. On the higher end, people go, oh my goodness, I've got loads of ideas, things you could do with paper clips. For example, I'm looking at you. Yeah, you are looking at me. Um, Jewellery. There we go, earrings. Yep. Yes. Um, You could sort of wrap it around your finger and make a spring out of it. Very good. And then you could just... I don't know, pointlessly launch this pencil on the table. Yes, or it could be like a little spring. pogo stick for a mouse. Uh, a little uh, coat hanger for doll's house uh, kind of clothing. Oh, nice. That's that's how I use them. Um, and my own clothing, because obviously I'm not very <laughs> t- big. Tiny, tiny, tiny. tiny. I'm big here, absolutely tiny. I'm two inches tall. I have actually used them to mend my glasses before. Okay. Because I lost the screw and I thought, oh, if I unwrap a paper clip and then just shove the straight end down Okay. There. Did that look as good as I'm thinking I it look looked? really cool. Yes, I, I mean, can imagine. Yeah. yeah, but... So there we go. So lots of creative uses. Okay. And you give people normally three minutes to yeah. come up with them. And then you can code that in various ways. You can just count the number of them. Or you can say, who came up with the most unusual take on it? Okay. What, who, who came up with an answer that's furthest away from clipping bits of paper together? That's right. Or who came up with an answer which no one else has come up <gasps> Ooh, with? Ooh, nice. You okay. see? So you can start yeah. to put numbers to it. Yeah. Um, and then you can start to put them into categories. You can say, well, hold on a second. There's a whole load of them here to do with clipping bits of paper together or a whole load to do with making ears rings and that's a bit like making a fingering and, and, and so on. And so you can start to try and put numbers to it and that allows you to then correlate or look at the relationship between those numbers and other things. Or you can give people what psychologists like to refer to as interventions uh, where you kind of go, hey, look, try this and see if your numbers go up second time round. 
And that's sort of the, the core of creativity research. But using that simple idea, my goodness, have we found out amazing things about creativity. Okay, well, we're going to get into some of those. But first, can I ask about children? Why are, why are children so creative? And do we lose this creativity as we get older? It's a little bit of a myth. There, there's a lot of people talk about that. And there's some evidence that kids do quite well on the paperclip task okay. and adults don't do quite so well. But it's not that convincing. I think what does happen is that in the education system, there's this notion of there's just a single answer and you're, that's the correct answer and your job is to get that correct answer. In some ways, that's what exams are about. And there's an argument which is that that, that kind of pushes down creativity instead of saying to kids, you know what, there's loads of answers. And you've got to find your own answer. And it's got to be different to everyone else's oh, if answer. If only maths worked like that. <laughs> well, could do, could do. No, it can't. When I did my uh, A-levels physics, it was a little bit different because you, you weren't given a sort of formula and, and a correct answer. You had to work it all out. So my A-level physics question in my exam was, what is the pressure on a tent when it rains? And that's it. And so you had to make all these assumptions about the rain and tent and then and, and, and so on. So there's a little bit more of this idea of you could sort of explore the space a bit. It wasn't like what there is only one single answer to this. We, we've moved away from that a little bit. I, I keep butting up against this because I, I did history and a bunch of sciences. And I kept saying, what is the right answer for the history? And they went, well, it just depends on how you yes. argue it. And I was like, no, because if I argue with the same beliefs as the person marking it, then they'll go tick, tick, tick. Yes. So therefore, that's the right answer. It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, if in psychology, we're very used to ambiguity and things changing and there not being one answer. You can look at it from a Freudian perspective, you can look at it from a cognitive, and, and we're very used to that. There is a lovely physics problem, which is how do you use a barometer to measure the height of a building? which is lovely. It's great. And all the physicists run off down one particular route and talk about, I don't know, air pressure and equations and physics. The psychological approach is that you give the barometer to the person in charge of the building and say, can you tell me how high the building is in exchange for this barometer? <laughs> I was going walk up to the top of the building, attach like long bit of string to barometer, oh. lower barometer to the ground, yes. remove... Height of barometer. Yes, very practical. And there you go. Yes, just exchange the barometer for the, the knowledge you need. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're always clearly better. <laughs> well, it's better. But it's it's, I mean, it involves less walking up buildings and therefore yes. that's easier. And just go for a coffee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so the creativity is a, a messy one. But yeah, so with, the, so with the kids, I think there is this argument that just telling kids there's the one right answer encourages this very narrowing of thought. We're saying, you know what, there's loads of ways of approaching this. Then that that's a kind of more, and I think it makes lessons more interesting as well. Mm. Probably a little bit more challenging to teach. Well, talking of education and, and teaching students, we've had a listener question about the science of creativity from Samantha Cook, who's a student at Durham University. And she says, hi, Richard and Marnie. First of all, thank you for the podcast. It's been really wonderful to listen to. And it's really helped me explore new avenues in psychology and psychological research. I like the sound of this already. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have a few questions uh, regarding creativity and imagination. How would we go about measuring creativity in a lab setting. So, paper clips. Paper clips. Yes, very, very important. Easy. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. what paper clips are for. So there's another creativity test where you get people to draw a hill and a tree 
and a house. And apparently you can work out how creative they are by how they arrange these elements. And I had the opportunity to give that test to a very well-known um, film director. And he did something which I've never seen before, was he just drew the hill. <gasps> and I said, well, what about the house and the tree? And he said, they're behind the hill. Nice. Very good. That is very good. Yes. So we've spoken about paper clips. Uh, there are other ways of measuring creativity. Some of these are lateral thinking tests. Uh, so here's one that's often used. Preston and Macy, two friends, they get on well, but they've got this really strange thing. Whenever in the same room, Preston insists on sitting behind Macy and Macy insists on sitting behind Preston. How can we arrange the room so that both of them are happy? Ooh. Mm. So they both want to sit behind each other. Now, that's the sort of thing psychologists torture their participants with. Okay, so uh, could you get one of those sort of love seats where mm -hmm. someone's, they're facing opposite directions and... Oh, you're very close. And they're kind of... Yeah. This doesn't work well on a podcast, but no, I'm kind I can see of what you're doing. You're holding linking, your hands in, in a strange way. I'm sort of linking two C's so yes. you can... Well, the other way of doing it is just getting them to sit back to back. Oh! Yeah. Yeah. There okay. you go. That's, clever, that's, clever. that's what we're looking for. Uh, so a uh, magician says it can move a ping pong ball a short distance. It can then come to a complete stop and then it reverses itself. He's not going to bounce a ball against the wall or anything like that. How can he perform this miracle? of making a ping-pong ball move, come to a complete stop, and then actually reverse its movement. Uh, roll it up a hill? Throw it into the air. Oh, throw it into the air. That's clever. Yes. Yes, that's better than mine. <laughs> well, no, no. I was thinking fans. Yes. I was constructing some sort of complicated system in my head. But yes, throwing yes. it up in the air is... But what both of these demonstrate is that lovely creative power of simplicity. So uh, one of... Uh, so we've gone completely away from the question now. Yeah, no, so, I mean, you, you've answered one of Samantha's questions, but she also wanted to know what determines how vivid our visual imagination is. And well, your, your film director clearly had a vivid visual imagination where he could see out of line of sight. Yes. Well, we're used to thinking very, very visually, um, if, you, if you're a film director. So this gets down to a, a friend of mine, David Marks, who I've known for, for many years, and he came up with a questionnaire to measure people's vividness of imagery. So if you imagine looking in a mirror, so you have that image in your mind, he would then ask questions like, is it in colour, that imagery? How much detail is there? Can you see your face or is that a little bit of a blur? What's the surround of the mirror like? Is it in a room or is it just a mirror in some abstract space? And so when he starts to ask those questions, you start to find out, again, measurement, you put people on a continuum. Some people go, oh, it's just black and white and it's just like a square in front of me with like a stick figure inside. And other people go, oh, my goodness, it's incredible. And, and, and they start to describe all the detail. So people see in black and white? If well, some, some imagine are, in black and white. Yeah, I haven't got very good visual uh, imagery skills. And so, in fact, there's not very much going on in my head. Most <laughs> Shock confession. I know. Um, there's not much going on in my head until I start to speak. And, and then things start to go on in my head. But actually, the rest of the time, it's quite quiet in there. So this idea, I tried a meditation course with a regular friend of mine. I only got about two or three minutes in when I said... I want things in my head. It's, I, I find it very easy to, to have nothing in my head, where a lot of people have very busy internal lives and they like the idea of calming it down. We're just celebrating differences here.
You're listening to Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. And this episode, we're talking about creativity. There's nothing as dangerous as a person with just one idea. Yeah. And so what you want to do is once you've got that solution, generate another five. Because once we've got the idea, it's like ownership. It becomes our idea. And sometimes there's a lot of ego uh, in, in invested in that. When you start to generate others, then you start to go, actually, that one's a little bit better solution. And whenever I put together a team, I always say the best idea wins, which actually is an Apollo idea. The best idea wins. We all park our egos and whoever comes up with the best idea. And if it means all changing at the last minute because someone's had a better idea, they suddenly realise that back-to-back is really simple and elegant, that's what we're going to do. So nothing is set in stone until we're absolutely certain or are forced to, to actually do something. So I think that kind of openness helps. Does it mean that getting people to come up with multiple ideas helps them park the ego? Because if you've, you know, if I'd thought of something really good, I'd be like, right, job done. Mm-hmm. Just going to sit back and argue about how my idea is the best. But actually, if I've got three ideas, my ego is having to be split between the three. Yeah, I think that's right. That's part of it and seeing things from a different position. Also, with a group of people, the idea is the entity. It will never be attributed to any one person around that table. So no one's going to walk out and go, that was my idea. We're just going to go, as a group, we produce this thing. And that thing has to be the best it can possibly be because otherwise people start to go, it's my idea. And as soon as you push back, they start to defend their idea. And then you get into an argument about instead of this lovely, creative, open, oh, my goodness, could be this, could be that, could be that. Here's a funny story. People are very creative when they're, they're laughing. So that's why around me often there's nothing. Oh, often that's not just, true. People are just like looking as like just into the distance. I Terrible. laugh a lot in this podcast. Uh, and the other one, the other way of measuring creativity, which I... I'm really not very good at this at all, is the remote association test. So you have three words, and there's a fourth word. You're going to be good at this because you're, you're very linguistic, aren't you? There's, a, there's a, a fourth word that is related to the other three. So okay. I'll give you an example. Uh, square, cardboard, and open. Square, cardboard, and open are all linked to the word box. Okay. You have a square box, you have a cardboard box, you have an open box. Uh, so coin, quick, and spoon. Uh, no. Mm. And all because I put pressure on you now by saying you'd be good at this. No, I know. I really want to win. I mean, normally, normally people get this within about 40 seconds. <laughs> oh, I mean, that, that's just five-year-olds, obviously. <laughs> Adults. Stop it. Uh, we Stop just it. go, it's obvious. Coin. It's so obvious I'm not going to bother even Coin. giving the solution. Quick, quick sand, quick yeah. spoon. Just to point out, most even chimpanzees have suffered no. by this point. <laughs> I've never that. known anyone take this long. Stop it. Uh, My yeah. brain's just going, quick, hurry up, mm. hurry up. Exactly, so there's pressure on you. So you're, you're not being creative and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> do you want the answer? No. Mm. Yes, yes, I do. Good. Well, I'm sure listeners want the answer too and we'll give that in another episode. Oh, no. No, no please. the answer is silver. Silver oh. coin, quick silver, silver spoon. So obvious. So obvious. Which is also true of most good ideas. And which is why people take other people's ideas because, they, oh, it's obvious. And you go, well, it wasn't obvious until that person thought of it. Wheels, wheels on cases. You know, like in airports, everyone's wheeling along their case. Yeah. That's a reasonably recent thing. Even when I was like in my sort of late teens, early 20s, everyone just had a case. So I got mine trapped in a ticket barrier, a really cheap case, and I pulled the handle <gasps> off it. 
So I had to actually just carry the case uh, through Heathrow. It was very difficult. But it was absolutely obvious that you should put wheels on a piece of luggage and a handle. But it wasn't obvious until somebody thought of that. And for years, no one was doing that. Everyone was putting their backs out. So it's, that's what's interesting about creativity is that as soon as someone has that idea, oh, my goodness, why didn't we think of that before? And, of course, there's the whole thing about never saying no in one of those creativity meetings. So everything's yes and don't. It's not but. So, so when somebody has an idea, you, know, you don't immediately come up with 10 reasons why that won't work, even if they've all just flooded into your head. You know, that's great. And not only that, and then you get a completely different well, idea. That's great. But also we this, could, which this, is quite, we, sounds quite that, different to your idea, but, but hear did, me out. If you hadn't said that terrible idea, <laughs> I would have never had this wonderful one. So thank yeah. goodness you are in the meeting. Okay, yes. I need to do that then. Um, can we get another listener question? Here's listener question about tricks to make you more creative from Kate Miller. She says, my daughter saw on a kids TV show that if you move your eyes rapidly left to right, it can make you more creative. Something to do with stimulating both the left and right sides of the brain. Is there any truth in this? Uh, I really doubt it. So it's if it makes you laugh and you have a fun time, that might make you a bit more creative. I don't think it's going to really have any impact on, on what's happening inside your brain. Uh, there is some research that if you get people to nod their heads up and down because they're acting as if they agree with something, then they end up thinking that this is a good thing. So you get this is research where you show people a computer screen, they follow a ball that's either going left to right or up and down. And when it's up and down, they then agree to whatever is coming next far more rapidly than if you're going, you know, you're shaking your head. It's when, when I watch tennis, for example, I then disagree with everything <laughs> that comes afterwards. I tell you what doesn't make you more creative, in addition to moving your eyes in a strange way, is brainstorming. Terrible idea. So this is the idea that we all get together and we kick around thoughts and, and uh, we come up with something more creative. There's been loads of research into it. And it turns out, if anything, it actually decreases the number of ideas generated. So how do you get, if you've got a great idea in the office yeah. and, and you want everyone to kind of in on it, how do you... Well, you, you don't... You don't all... put them in the room together. No, no, it's a bad idea because a few things happen. One is that, obviously, it's a group of people, so some people are going to be more dominant than others. And who knew some of the most dominant people are not the most creative people. So some people get very quiet uh, in groups. What you should do if you want to use brainstorming correctly is you ask every member of the group to come up with three solutions before they meet up. And then in the session, you go around the group and discuss all three solutions of everyone. That does push the creativity up. This idea is going to be happening you know, all over the world right now. These people are going to be getting together uh, to be more creative and in doing so, actually reducing their creativity. It's one of the big myths of creativity. Wow. Any other tricks for, for boosting creativity? Well, the easiest one is go and ask a creative person, which actually I find it really weird that people don't do that. So I can't draw. And rather than going on an art class, it's easier for me to go to somebody who can draw and just ask for a favour. And yet people don't do it with creativity. They kind of go... <laughs> They've got this idea that somehow we've all got this kind of inner creative genius, if only they could unleash it. I think, you know what, just go and ask somebody, your most creative pal, uh, probably get you a lot further. So is it... Um... Go and get them to do the paper test, uh, paperclip test. 
But is that something to do with not being very creative at problem solving? If you score low on that, you won't have thought of that as a solution. I just think it's this idea that, egotistical idea that we're all kind of creative geniuses. If only we could unleash that power. And you think, you know what? Sometimes we're not. So anyway, that that's my top tip for creativity is to just look at what everyone else is doing and do the exact opposite. I've used that for years and so when I was when I did 59 seconds, the idea there was things you could learn in less than a minute. At that point, when that book uh, came out, everyone was doing really big books about psychology and it was all very complicated and it was going to take you years to get through these big books. I just did the opposite of what everyone else was doing. And I think that's quite a good, a good little tip. Doesn't apply in all life lessons if everyone else is running away from the Godzilla. Yes, to maybe. run towards it. No. Well, you'll get some good pictures. <laughs> Briefly. But this, that's how we got to the moon. You know, the original idea was to follow the group think, which was that you send a rocket directly to the moon. Because that's how they've been sending rockets during the Second World War. That's, if you look at sci-fi comics, they've got a big rocket that goes straight to the moon. And that's what they all intended to do until one physicist went, that is a crazy idea. We should send one rocket up, another craft from that rocket to the moon, another one down to the surface, and, and basically breaking it up instead of having one rocket. If they'd have gone with the original plan that everyone was convinced about, it'd have been an absolute disaster. So it's the power of going, hold on a second, but you've got to be a certain type of person, certain type of confidence as well to do that and not run with the crowd. We've had a question from children's author Nicola Skinner about idea generation. She says, Hi, Richard. As a published author, I sometimes worry that my creativity will dry up and I won't be able to come up with an idea for my next novel. Do you have any top tips on how to stimulate creative ideas and avoid being stuck in a rut? It's a very good question, isn't it? I think most creatives have that worry. I think it's it's wrong. I, I think that if you think like that, if you see the world in that way, it's probably going to stick with you uh, throughout your life. But with creativity, you do want to feed it. I think creativity is quite hard work. When you talk to creative people, they're putting in the hours. They're going around art galleries, museums, bookshops, watching television. All this stuff is feeding. And then in their heads, they're combining different things to, to come. So, so when you're watching telly, it's actually creative. If you've got a problem to try and solve, <laughs> if you're trying to come up with a new TV pro, uh, program, yeah. it's helpful to know what everyone else is doing. Not in order to copy them, but, in, but otherwise you want to go, that bit's good, that's a bit good, how could combine that in an unusual way and so on. And, and it's the same with books. Um, when I was doing a lot of writing, you know, I would just spend hours in the psychology sections looking at what everyone was doing and just going and going, right, that's interesting, that little bit's interesting. And so on. It's hard work. These ideas don't come out of nowhere. They feel like they do, but actually every creative is putting in the hours, I think. So I, I think as long as you continue to do that, there's no reason to think you'd suddenly dry up with ideas. There's, there's a guy called um, Austin Cleon who says steal like an artist. Right. Which is all about, you know, you take little bits here and there and you're not plagiarising, you're just combining them into something else that's... It's sort of what creativity is, particularly creative problem solving, is that you're thinking, hold on a second, they solved... You know, I always say, when I, did, I did street entertainment, not very far from here, actually. Um, when I was in my late teens. Oh, I thought you were just going to be like, before we came in, I before did I some in, street entertainment. I would still go and do it. I would still go and do it. What, what kind of stuff? Juggling? Um, Clowning. 
It was not clowning. Thank you very much. Uh, it was. It was the way you said clowning. Then uh, it was. Well, it was initially break dancing. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> because sorry. And then I actually saw some break dancers, and I thought, no, I can't do that. And and what I was doing was just well, throwing it, yourself it, 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 against a paper. It was just. It was just inappropriate, uh, to be honest. Uh, so no, we had I had a juggling act, and uh, with a friend of mine, and. What was interesting is that you have to get a crowd and people have got the ability and the right to just walk away. Mm. And when we did it, they they used that right. <laughs> it was, it was, so it's not like having an audience at an auditorium. And so you learn all these sorts of techniques for getting and holding attention. And often I've returned to those to solve other problems. So you go, well, if you're running a big business, how do you get and hold a customer's attention? If you're doing an ad involved in various sort of ad and marketing campaigns and so on, how do you get and hold people's attention? I think, well, let's think about it like a street entertainer. And, and so that, that kind of juxtaposition, often bringing in stuff from another context is very helpful. That's actually a really useful life skill, knowing how to get and hold someone's attention. Yeah. Yeah. And, and part of it, I'm sure I've spoken about this on another episode, is, you know, going to that conference on sales and talking to the top salesperson, saying, what's the secret of selling? And them saying, find something everybody wants to buy. It was completely turned out my whole world around. And again, there's many, many times where I've gone, OK, hold on a second. What, does, what do people want here? Not what are you trying to sell? What, what do people want? What is actually going to hold someone's attention? What is interesting? What's going to make them turn the page? So creativity, I think, is is hard work in that sense. Does that mean um, that you never panic about what your next book's going to be about? Never, ever. Never, ever panic. No, no, well, about that. No, there's, I mean, there's a very famous Apollo astronaut um, story about that, which is that, you know, when things go terribly wrong, you can have your little panic, and then what are you going to do? Many years ago, I spoke to a head of an ad agency, and about creatives. And he said, you know what? They live on a very, very busy street. There are always buses coming along. So if you miss one or someone takes your bus, which is a bit annoying, somebody nicks your idea, don't worry. There'll be another bus along in a bit. Let them take that bus. Maybe that's not the best route anyway. And so I think, yeah, if you live on a busy street, it's, you shouldn't panic about it. There'll, there'll be something that, that comes along. The other thing I would say about creative ideas is always less is more. I've been in a lot of kind of meetings where people need creative ideas. The one thing which kills it is we can do anything. We've got a huge budget. You might as well all just go home. But the moment someone says, you know what, we need to advertise this book and we've only got 50p. Yeah. Every Oh, hold on a second. What can, like, we, do? What can we do? And suddenly you start. So limitations are really important for creativity. There's a whole movement, the Ulipo movement. Do you know about them? I don't. These are um, a group of artists, mainly poets, uh, French poets, who who decided that this kernel of creativity should come from limiting yourself in mm. ways that. So they they gave themselves barriers, and one of the I love this. They would do something called univocalism, where you're only allowed one vowel. Mm. And so you have to write an entire poem. You're only allowed say O. Yeah. And a friend of mine did this and came up with a fantastic line about the end of an, end of a drunken evening drops Pollock on both boots, which is a beautifully creative way of saying throwing up on your shoes. And would never have happened without, without the limitation. Yeah. It's so it's really really important. Um. So I think we've covered huge amounts. Mm. We've found out that brainstorming is a very bad idea. 
that doing the exact opposite of everyone else is is good and that less is more, that limitations are good. And that creativity, although it's just that idea that suddenly occurs to you, is actually being built on a huge amount of feeding of the unconscious and your ability to combine things in new ways is like anything else. It's, it's quite hard work. What I've learned is everyone should probably have a compulsory six months as a street entertainer. Yes, not with my act. No, I think the worse the better. Like, if you can gather people round to watch you do something really mediocre, I'm not saying it was, um, <laughs> then that's that's the important skill, right? It's not the juggling. No, it was it was selling the sizzle, yeah, and not exactly, the steak. Exactly. Yeah, we, we for a good reason. And then you're like, that steak was not tasty. No steak. That's right. <laughs> it's just me breakdancing. <laughs> From Podomo and Telltale, this has been Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. Hosted by Professor Richard Wiseman and Marnie Chesterton. Our producer is Kate White. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudno and Matt White. And for Telltale are Rami Sabar and Jago Lee. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at WisemanPod. Where we'll be regularly asking you for questions for future episodes. You can also email us at WisemanPod at Podomo.com. And if you like this podcast, tell your friends, leave us a review. If you don't like it, tell your friends you did. Why should you be the only ones to suffer? Although it does help others find us. And don't forget to subscribe. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.